0: Hey there! Welcome to the Tints. I'm your host Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. Today, I just want to do a, a little quick hit. In fact, I'll probably do a few little quick hits today on some topics people have, have uh, brought up before, and I think it's kind of fun to touch on these things once in a while. So, for example, today we're going to talk about more than more than you think that geology, as opposed to leaves and twigs and stuff, influences blackwater habitats both in the wild and believe it or not in the aquarium and as we sort of delve deeper into the world of botanical method aquariums and blackwater which is somehow they're weaved together which makes sense i think it becomes more and more important for us to understand how the wild blackwater habitats of the world work specifically how they form and what their physical characteristics are So it's easy for us to just totally cliche it and say that, you know, black water is water that has a low pH caused by, you know, dissolved organic materials and looks the color of tea. You know, the standard aquarium line that's used for decades. Not untrue, but not really all that helpful in understanding what the hell this stuff is. And more important, understanding why it has these characteristics. Well, it starts with the study of rocks. Geology. Yeah. Now, I should first start by freely admitting that I sort of well, dozed through the limited number of, geog- you know, geology classes that I took in high school and in college, and I never knew at the time that, you know, that the time I spent in those classes drawing pictures on the back of my notebooks would ever come back to haunt me decades later when I have to refamiliarize myself with all this stuff. So my understanding is limited, but I'll convey what I do know to you guys here. Blackwaters in areas like Amazonia, one of my fave locales of course, drain from an area known to geologists as the Precambrian Guiana Shield. And that's an area which is comprised of sediments including quartz, sandstone, shales, and conglomerates, uh, and they're all stem from you know, near the formation of the earth around 4.6 billion years ago. And as a result of lots of geological activity over the eons, a soil type consisting of whitish sands called podzol is formed. We've talked about podzol before, haven't we? Uh, Podzols typically derive from quartz-rich sands, sandstone and other sedimentary materials in areas of high precipitation, you know, like the Amazon. So typically, podzols are lousy for growing stuff because they're sandy, have little moisture, and even less nutrients. A process called podzolization, what else would it be called, right, Um, occurs where the decomposition of organic matter is inhibited. So numerous microbes and plants consume some of the nitrogen and while eaten by other organisms convey what's left to the even lower lying forest habitats. So the Amazonian blackwater rivers are largely depleted in nutrients having passed through the lowland forest soils as groundwater from which weathering has already occurred. We could talk about, you could look up weathering, it's an interesting topic on its own. Anyway, as a result, layers of acidic organics build up with these rather acidic conditions, a deficiency of nutrients further slows the decomposition of the organics. So yeah, lousy soil for growing stuff. But guess what? They form the basis of the substrate in pretty much any Amazonian aquatic habitat. And the water which flows over this soil is what we call black water, which achieves its unique color from a really high content of dissolved, you know, fulvic and humic substances, poor in nutrients and electrolytes. It's characterized by having sodium as one of its major cations, ions, which are ions which, with fewer electrons than protons, giving them a positive charge. Basically, what that means is that it has low alkalinity. Typically, the pH and electrical, you know, conductivity values are super, super low. So to make a very long story short, and probably at the risk of just really simplifying it, the physical characteristics of blackwater habitats are influenced as much by the geology as they are by anything else. That is to say, all of the dissolved humic substances which give these bodies of water their unique look are enabled by geological properties that are found in the region. And from a trace element perspective, that's the reefer in me, you know, just only a few trace elements are present in consistent concentration variabilities to influence the chemistry of these water. Like this water has very low concentrations of trace elements, and you could look up online which ones specifically are present. Now, this is probably more than you'll ever care to know about how, you know, sand works in your blackwater habitats, but I think it's important to understand that it's all kind of related. In fact, it makes it a lot easier to understand how blackwater systems come to exist and function when you consider this whole big picture stuff. And I did a pretty cursory, probably not the greatest job of explaining it, but hopefully it piqued your interest. and, And if nothing else, you get the idea that soil and geology are the primary influences of what we call black water. And of course, we're a lot more interested in the decaying vegetation part, you know, the leaves, the twigs, and all that kind of stuff, which influences the waters. And if we're really into creating realistic substrates, which we are, I can't help but think that we'd have to source the podzolic type material to use as a base. Oh wait, I kind of developed that for you. So that's what nature base is all about. Anyway, uh, infomercial aside there, uh, I think the point is that just having an awareness of what goes on in the natural aquatic habitats gives us a nice leg up on this stuff you're obviously not going to use strongly buffering substrate materials like aragonite or whatever to do the job in your low ph and alkalinity blackwater aquarium or botanical aquarium right so you could always use quartz sand that's that's one of my faves and of course there's some good commercial sands out there as well and then there's this question that we get i'm bouncing i guess today as usual but There's another question that we get a lot about utilizing rocks in your, you know, simulations of the Agapo or the Varzea. How come you don't find a rock in those habitats? Well, the the truth is you you might, but as you know from the long-winded description above, I'm not an expert on this stuff, but I'll give you what I found in my research. It goes without saying that these conditions are hardly conditions under which rocks as we know them could form. And again, you might find a random rock in, in Agapo that was washed down from the Andes or some high country locale or whatever into the forest, but it's pretty safe bet that it didn't evolve there. And this helps to explain why blackwater habitats are generally low in inorganic nutrients and minerals, right? So if you're really, really hardcore into replicating an Agapo-type habitat, and we've seen that term kicked around a lot on the internet, you probably want to exclude rocks, especially if you're entering one of those, you know, biotope aquarium contests and where the judges will rightfully nail you for scoring uh, on scoring for you know falling back on your natural inclinations to be an aquascaper and toss a few rocks in—they're just generally not generally not found there. Uh, and if they are, again, they didn't form there, so why would you include them in something you're entering in a contest to simulate that habitat? Just a word of advice, right, from the anti-contest guy. <laughs> I personally, of course, would be a little bit more forgiving, I suppose, but you won't find rocks in my agapo tank. Nope. So anyway, so much to consider here, isn't there? But this was a little quick hit. A tiny little dive into these seemingly obscure topics can sometimes give us clues that can influence our aquarium practices. So I want to encourage you to, if you have an inkling of ideas about this stuff or questions, look it up. There's tremendous resources available online. And I'm not talking about the aquarium hobby resource. Go and Google Scholar uh, go on uh, CLO and a bunch of other scientific sites where you can find all kinds of papers on this stuff. And you might have to wade through some things, but it's really, really worth it. Stay curious, stay diligent, stay informed, stay inspired, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman from Tent and Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tent.